Good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome you all here today. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled The Economics of Health Insurance Reform. Um, the repeal and the replacement of the Affordable Care Act has dominated discussions on Capitol Hill in recent weeks, and as we speak, Republican lawmakers are huddling in Philadelphia to chart a course for repairing the damage done to health insurance markets in recent years. Uh, despite the large array of replacement plans, when critics of the GOP state that they don't have a plan, and I suppose I'm being charitable here, but Democrats are saying they don't have a politically viable one. There's some truth to that, as any comprehensive replacement will require input and support from Senate Democrats. If their current take-no-prisoners approach continues, they will, in an act of pure self-fulfillment, prevent the possibility of a politically viable plan. But to add to the mix, the President has promised an outline of his own, further complicating the endeavor, though one that might bind and unify existing offerings. Well, time will tell, and we will see. Uh, I should state, too, that the pure libertarian position on health insurance requires no federal interference, and at worst, the lightest regulation at the state level. Uh, prices are clear, innovation and quality is high, prices are low, and obstacles to entrepreneurship and competition would be minimal. But in the absence of such a result, the discipline of economics can prove insightful and can help steer lawmakers to policies less distortionary to market processes and help avoid the problems of unmet medical needs through optimally functioning insurance markets. But all that aside, and to understand the best available course in our present circumstances, we need to have a better understanding of how health insurance markets work and how they relate to healthcare spending and the real world effects of insurance on a patient's health. Uh, to explore these issues, I've asked Cato's Peter Van Doren to deliver his pr presentation today. Van Doren is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the editor of the wonderfully fascinating quarterly journal, Regulation. If you are not getting that already, come to me after. I'll make sure you're on the list. But uh, He is an expert on the regulation of housing, land, energy, the environment, transportation, and labor, and much else. Uh, he has taught at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton the School of Organization and Management at Yale, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Journal of Commerce, and the New York Post. And Van Doren has also appeared on CNN, CNBC, Fox News, and The Voice of America. Uh, a graduate of MIT, he earned his master's degree and doctorate from Yale University. Uh, we will leave time for questions at the end, but for now, let's please welcome Peter Van Doren. I'm not a podium kind of speaker. I like to wander, but the <clears throat> microphone confines me to be here. So if I, anyway, I'll, I'll move around all day and C-SPAN will be irritated. So if I look edgy, it's because I like to make believe I'm teaching my class, which I can't do with this setup. But anyway, so <clears throat> I thought I'd start with some humor. Notice the first word in the outline. It's an adjective, and it's modifying facts. Well, this couple, last couple weeks, we've had some adjectives modifying facts. So I'm using a term economists use, and a colleague last week asked me, well, why do economists always use the term stylized fact? And I, I actually had no idea. So I actually looked up the origin. It comes from an article by Nicholas Caldor, a Nobel Prize winning economist, 1957. He used the term to refer to the results of analytic studies and regressions that economists have come to accept as true. 
So they're facts not in the two plus two equals four sort. They're facts from analytic studies and estimates and things like that that the economics profession comes to accept as true. So what I thought I'd do today is start out by <clears throat> everyone, all of you from congressional offices, anyone who claims to want to do something about health care, we first have to start with the facts, the facts about expenditures. And that's what I want to start with. So you can read what I've written in the outline, which is the expenditures rise predictably with age. Per capita expenditures from 2012 are about 3,500 for under age 19, for 4,400 uh, between 19 and 44, and 9,500, and so on and so on. Finally, if you're over age 84, the average healthier expenditures on you in 2012 were $32,400. It's a lot of money. First of all, the average divided across the whole population is 10 grand. So guess what? We, what we do is basically have endless, endless, endless fights over whether everybody pays 10 grand or some people pay less and some people pay more, right? That's pretty much it. And if some people pay less than 10 grand a year, some people have to pay more. And the parties fight over this and the people fight over this. And, and, but in the end, we've got to pay 10 grand a year per capita, because that's what we spend. Okay. See, I'm, I'm, I'm drifting away from the mic. The second important stylized fact about healthcare expenditures is that they're extremely, and I mean extremely, concentrated. Most people aren't sick. In fact, so I'm going to, if I had a, a cumulative frequency distribution is what I want to draw. So I want to rank order all Americans. There's 330 million of us almost, 325 million of Americans. Make believe we put them all in a row from the lowest healthcare expenditures in a given year to the highest, all right? There is a sickest American every year. We spend, I don't, you know, millions of dollars on that person. And then there's someone that spends zero. Not only someone, if you look at the outline data I give you, the first 50% of that cumulative frequency distribution, in other words, something on the order of 160 million Americans, they don't spend anything on that health care at all, hardly. They spend $264 a year. Okay? That's only 2.8% of aggregate health care expenditures a year. The sickest 1%, somewhere around 3 million people a year, we spend 107000 a year on them. And that accounts for almost a quarter of aggregate U.S. health expenditures. The top 5%, 
Okay, 1%. So 15 million out of 330 million people. 15 million people, the expenditures on them, that's half of healthcare spending right there. So figuring out what to do about, how to pay for, how to struggle with healthcare spending basically depends on figuring out what to do with those sickest people, right? And everyone says, well, I don't know what to do about that. There are claims on both sides about what we have to do, and I'm going to go through those. And then I'm going to try to argue that there are two papers that you've never heard of and never read, and you should read them. I've been giving a version of this talk for 20 years. For 20 years. The first paper, I'm getting ahead of the game here, but the first paper I'm going to talk about was published in 1995. And yet, I bet you, I bet you, I bet you a lot of money, none of you in this room who are congressional staffers have ever read that paper, even though it's your job to figure this out. So how do insurance markets manage these stylized facts, right? Very concentrated healthcare expenditures. Well, the conventional wisdom, certainly post-Affordable Care Act, is that the only solution, right, that <clears throat> all of you here who are healthy and young, you won't buy anything called healthcare insurance unless your employer provides it at a very, at a very subsidized rate because you're healthy, you don't need it, okay? And then, thus the, and then that leaves sick people, and sick people, the mean expenditure for, for them, as I said, is somewhere between 50 and $100,000 a year. That means the premiums would have to be that average. No one would want to, and many couldn't afford to pay that. So the solution, in the conventional wisdom is coercion, right? That you have to pool, all of you here have to be forced to join a pool with all the sick people so that in the end, somehow, all of us end up paying 10 grand a year, right? The, we, somehow we have to pay 10 grand a year. The only question is how? The conventional wisdom is that we need to use force. Of course, libertarians, we kind of worry, right? So we may need to use force, coercion now and then, but be careful. Don't think of it as your first solution. So the, the gentle word for force is community rating, right? Just language is everything in politics. So community rating sounds, sounds pretty benign. Libertarians say, no, it's force. Both are true. They're describing the same situation. Now, here's the thing that's puzzled me which is, there is an alternative world. It did exist, and it did work, and somehow everyone denies that that occurred. I was at a healthcare conference once, or it was a little meeting at Cato with Ezekiel Emanuel, and I said, Do you, have you read the Pauli paper? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, then stop talking. You can't talk about the possibility of individual guaranteed renewable health insurance markets 
unless you've read the Pauli paper. And he said, I don't have to read it. And he walked out. Well, what can I do, right? All I'm trying to do today is not win you over, is not to make you do anything. It's just to say, I think you owe yourselves to read the two papers I'm going to describe because they say that the world that Cato describes, which allegedly can't exist, in fact did exist. So I want to walk you through how is that possible. The key is that the costs are very concentrated. Okay? Most people aren't sick. Some people are. So therefore, <clears throat> health insurance contracts need to have two prices, two components. The first is the average healthcare costs of someone of your age if you're normal and not sick. And the way this is defined is they're, they're, all this comes from the medical expenditure panel data. And diseases are defined. We have Cato regrets this, of course, but the government does keep good data. And so the, the data for the studies I'm describing all come from the great data kept by Medicare and Medicaid and uh, the big insurers. So we have basically a complete data set on the history of illness of all Americans for 25 years. <clears throat> so we know the probability of any, for any given age group of reverting to a very sick condition for the next year, and we know how long that lasts, and we know how much we're gonna spend on it. We know all that. So the key is, in an individual, compatible, guaranteed, renewable health insurance world, what would induce everybody to sign up, even those of you who are only spending $264 a year, right? those of you who aren't interacting with the healthcare system at all? And the answer is, if you're young, <clears throat> it would have that base rate for, here's what I spend, and it's like $200 a year. Then we know diabetes, cancer, MS, uh, cerebral palsy, uh, weird autoimmune condition, right? We know all that. We know the probabilities of that occurring in every age group. And we know the costs of treating those diseases, and we know how long they last. They don't last forever. The median time is four years. People either get better or they die. The good news is, from a health insurance perspective, is that there's an end to this high-cost condition one way or the other. And we know the probabilities, and thus we can just multiply how much we spend, time the probabilities, and then add that to the normal very low-cost premium that you would have if you had a term-only, non-renewable kind of life uh, health insurance. And that would be the guaranteed renewable individual health insurance premium for you for that year. We can do this for 20-year-olds. We can do this for 63-year-olds. It would be more expensive, right? But we know the transition probabilities in any given year of bad crap happening. And I give you some of the data in the outline heading four. Approximately a quarter of both males and females who are all initially low risk at age 18 will become um, high risk by age 55. 
and 40% will be high risk by age 64. Right? But we know this in a very fine-grained way, so we can price all this. So here's what Polly did. Polly priced everything out, and he said, in his hypothetical world, and he, and he used real medical expenditure data, he said, in my hypothetical insurance world, my insurance premiums for every age group would look like this. Then he went to health insurance companies and said, what do you charge for your guaranteed renewable individual health insurance contracts? And he found that the premiums were more or less exactly what he predicted they would be given the health claims data. So no excess profits, no gouging, no, no weirdness. And he published this paper and said, wow, look at this. It's the most important paper you've never heard of, most important paper you've never read. The second paper you've never heard of and not read is by a senior fellow at Cato, John Cochran, who's an economist at the University of Chicago. And he's a financial economist. He's not a healthcare economist. But he said, here's a weird thing. Guaranteed renewability makes consumers, puts consumers in a bind. They have to trust that this life insurance, that this health insurance company they've signed a contract with will really come through if they're in a high cost condition for the next N years, whatever N is. And he said, they're in a monopsony or monopoly kind of setting in that they can't choose. So Cochran said what people really need is a financial derivative that once their high cost goes with them, it's a sack of money tied to their neck, so that insurers would stop discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. And he called this health status transition insurance. And he wrote an article in the journal Political Economy in 1995 called Time Consistent Health Insurance. We got him finally to do a version for Cato in, 2000, uh, in 2009, and, and that paper is available uh, for you uh, at the outside. So, bottom line, individual guaranteed renewable health insurance contracts did exist and did work. The claim that the individual health insurance market is incapable of existing and working is incorrect. The problem is, of course, that most of us are an employer-provided health insurance market. The set of people in the individual market is not a random sample of society. And thus, the transitions between these two kinds of ways of health insurance are difficult. So in the poly uh, Cochrane world, we would end employer coverage, we would end Medicare, we would end Medicaid, we, we would have everyone finding their own insurance, but they would have all these little pockets of cash attached to them that would make insurers eager to find even the most sick patients, because those patients would leave the insurer indifferent to covering them, because they'd come with the present value of all their future costs, because we know all that from the data. The only trick is 
now we're in a kind of backwards induction game. Suppose people don't buy this really neat product, right? Suppose lots of people don't buy individual guaranteed renewable health insurance with a Cochrane Health Transition voucher attached to it. And the truth is I don't know what to do about that. Um, we're back to subsidies or mandates or some combination of both or nothing at all, right? Those are the, those are the three choices. And I'll leave that to political decision. So that's sort of part one of what I want to say. So I want to disabuse you of the notion that the Cato world is La La Land, not, not the movie, uh, that, that the Cato world of people buying and selling and everyone being covered is somehow an imaginary world. It is not. Very reputable people with data have shown that it did exist and can exist. You do not have to pool everyone in the same community rating system with a few plans that are all regulated. You can have gazillions of different insurance plans and everyone going for whatever they want. As long as everyone comes with a pile of cash associated with themselves that's sufficient to pay for them if they become sick, which actually is very rare. Okay, that's the importance to remember. I'm not saying that all the details have been worked out and all that, but if health insurance reform takes the premise that individual contracts are not possible, well, I want to put individual contracts back on the table as a possible intellectual starting point and see its removal as intellectually unwarranted. That's the message that I want to convey today. Now I want to switch and end with um, what I call the Dartmouth evidence-based medicine portion of the program. Um, for those of you who follow healthcare, you know that there's a line of work that says some of the middle class notions of what I call medical throughput, which look a lot like defense throughput to me, um, are unwarranted, just like John McCain has never meant a defense bill he didn't want to raise spending on. Many middle class voters, many middle class advocates believe that you can't spend enough on stuff. You can't do enough prevention. You can't do enough screening. We need to have screening for everything, for everybody, kumbaya. Well, you guess what? If you believe in science and you believe in evidence, it's remarkable how thin the evidence is for that position. So what I want to do is my little tirade here about the annual physical, early detection, and mass screening may be entirely overhyped. First is men. I think everyone, well, if you read the New York Times, right, you know prostate cancer screening probably isn't a good investment. All right, prostate cancer is very rare. Because we have detection regimes now, CAT scans and things, we can find all sorts. We can, they've done this, actually. They've taken random samples of people with um, some exhibiting health 
like back pain and others not exhibiting back pain. And then they do CAT scans on both. They find more things wrong on the people with no symptoms than the people with symptoms. So imaging, image, we now find things that are of no clinical significance. But when you find something and tell a patient they've, you found something, they never say, because they don't read the columns that I do, they never say, oh, I don't think we should do anything which actually should be your modal response to much of this stuff. They found a lump, they found this, they found that. Most of us will die from something other, other than whatever an image can find in us. People have cancer, much of it is of non-clinical significance, i.e. particularly prostate, it grows slowly, blah, 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 blah. Now. Some men die of very deadly prostate cancer, and it's not pretty. But to detect those very, very rare cases through mass screening, I give you the numbers in the outline. For every positive test that leads to a biopsy, there's only a 2% chance of preventing a death over the next 10 years. So talk about false positives, right? So think of all the people who undergo tests and biopsies that just all unwarranted expenditure, and he got worried, and for no reason, and you're chasing a needle in a haystack. Actually, <clears throat> one of the more interesting columns I ever ran in my journal, Regulation, was by a physicist who realized that searches for terrorists and mass screening for disease have a lot in common, which is people get hyped up and we believe in mass screening for terrorism, and we believe in mass screening for disease, and both are very unlikely to ever find anything because terrorism is rare and so are bad diseases. Now for women, mammography. Um, you can read as well as I can. A large Canadian study found no difference in mortality or death rates from breast cancer from a 25-year study of mammography versus just manual exam. No difference, nothing, okay? So why do physicians keep pushing mammography? Answer, a lot of patients demand it. It's the middle-class thing to do. So this subtle change, so we all grew up, well, I'm older, so we, I grew up with the American Cancer Society, a checkup and a check. That was, a lot of this comes from the fundraising strategies of nonprofits. Um, nonprofits raise money by scaring people. Right? And uh, you can't raise money by saying, um, libertarianism is something that you might be interested in, and you're, no, you've got to, come on, we're losing the struggle, blah, 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 right? They don't send me out to raise money very often. Um, <laughs> Because I'm not, I'm not into it, but I understand, right? To raise money for nonprofits is very difficult. So American Cancer Society is always saying, you cure cancer by having early detection. And guess who doesn't like the findings of these trials? Advocates for nonprofits, right? Because it undermines 50 years of messaging on their part. Here's the real one. How about the annual physical? I asked my own doctor, because I showed him this data, and I said, do you have a physical? And he said, no. 
where I was with him at my physical. <laughs> I said, then why am I here? And he said, because this is what we do. I mean, you see these rituals, right? Middle-class people go in and get physicals. That's what it's all about. 14 trials, 14 clinical trials, over 22 years of routine checkups, found no difference in death or serious illness between experimental and control groups. 14 years, okay? Finally, ovarian cancer, ugly, horrible, terrible. Mass screening, half were screened, half were not. 11, 13 year follow up. Sorry folks, no difference, no difference. Cato's human resources director, when I give this talk, I gave it to something called Cato University where our donors come and new employees are coerced at Cato. We don't, yeah, we coerce new people to come to these lectures. So the human resources person was new. She came up to me after I gave this talk and she, she wagged her finger at me and said, you have undermined 18 years of human resources messages that I've been giving everywhere I've been. What do human resources people do? Say, go get a checkup, check things early, it saves money, it saves your life, blah, 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 blah. I said, evidence remarkably thin. One exception, actually, colonoscopies. Colonoscopies matter, they really do but only in a certain way. They reduce colorectal cancer, but they don't change mortality rates. You die of something else, the same age you would have had you had the colon cancer. Now, colon cancer is ugly, you don't want that, but dying is ugly. So, we gotta talk more about basically, how do you wanna die, right? So libertarians are for freedom to choose and freedom to die the way you want, and I think actually, States are enacting that, Oregon, Maryland may be doing that, DC I think is tilted in that direction. So that may be actually the adult discussion to have. The Medicaid experiment. The Oregon Medicaid experiment, basically um, Oregon ran out of money and then it got an infusion of money and then rather than um, a social scientists intervene and said, wow, you've got a lot of demand and insufficient supply. Can we randomly assign people and see whether Medicaid makes a difference? Kate Baker, who has written for Cato, is now at Harvard School of Public Health, is part of the big team overseeing the Oregon Medicaid experiment. And these write-ups occur every year in health journals. And I'm giving you the results of the 2013 version of the Medicaid, the Oregon Medicaid experiment. So in 2008, they didn't have funds. Um, so there was random assignment to the new Medicaid funds and some people were denied and some people weren't. And then there's complete follow-up on their health up until now. People on Medicaid spent more money. Okay, that's not a surprise. How much did it change anything we could call medical? No significant effect on the prevalence of hypertension, high cholesterol, 10-year predicted cardiovascular event risk, or the use of medication 
for those conditions. Increased diagnosis of diabetes, no stretch there, but no significant effect on measured blood sugar levels. Now, this article hyped that people felt better in a self-report. True, Medicaid reduces financial anxiety. No question, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine being very poor and not knowing whether you could go see a doctor? That's probably not very much fun. So being on Medicaid can certainly relieve anxiety, absolutely. I believe that 100%. Does it change anything medically? Oddly enough, the story so far is no. Okay? And here's the kicker for me. What's the rationale for having everyone have insurance? It was that the uninsured cost us all of the rest of us money, right? The uninsured swamp the ERs and they, we need, we subsidize, blah, blah, blah. Look what the Oregon Medicaid experiment found between the, those who got Medicaid and those who didn't. No difference in the use of ER. Okay, no difference, no difference. So again, I'm an evidence-based guy, and I, I guess politics is increasingly less evidence-based. Uh, but in the end, the world does matter, and these facts will come to bite you no matter what your views are, and you gotta deal with them. I'll end with the real kicker about the uninsured. So you know Jonathan Gruber, right? Jonathan Gruber, MIT healthcare economist. Very good researcher bit of a polemicist when he takes the political role, but I like, I like his papers. Here's the most interesting paper by Gruber you've never read. He studied whether the uninsured were a net burden to Massachusetts taxpayers, and he studied physician services. So you all probably have normal medical insurance, and you probably get claims, and you get, and you get two prices, right? You get something. So you go in and they do something and they say, then they, you get a, a, a benefit statement form and it says charge price, $7,000. Insurance discount, $6,990. Net cost, $10. <laughs> well, guess who faces those absurd prices? The uninsured, right? If you go into the ER or a doctor's office those crazy list prices that you don't pay any attention to, that's the one, they, they face those. Well, guess what? A third of the uninsured in Massachusetts, uh, let me see if I get this. Sorry, 25% of the uninsured pay nothing. But two-thirds of the uninsured in Massachusetts paid more than the insured do under the rates that insured people get. So uninsured people were paying more than insured people under this complicated price discrimination scheme. But the net revenues to physicians from the uninsured in Massachusetts were greater than the, if they had been insured. Okay, that's a head scratcher. So now there's a throwaway line at the end of this paper that says, if I, Gruber, if I had studied hospitals in Massachusetts, I think I would have found the same thing. Whoa, 
that's a, and this is the architect of mandatory community rating. So as an intellectually said, wow, the uninsured is a problem, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't appear to be a whole, now, this is Massachusetts. Remember, the insured rate in Massachusetts is so high that it's not like states in the South or the West. It's a, so can we extrapolate this to Texas? I don't know. Uh, but certainly, it's an interesting paper that you ought to read. Um, so I think I've reached the end of what I want to say. Basically, I want to tease your brains, get you to read more outside of the things you read, and tell your bosses that there really are things out there and economists out there who've come up with things that might help them implement less coercive health insurance reform. Thank you.